You can open your Bibles once again to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we'll pick up where we left off last week. And Lord willing, we'll cover verses 12 through 14 today. 12 through 14. The title of this sermon is Binding the Almighty. Binding the Almighty. Last week, you'll recall our focus on verses 2 through 11. We saw both Jesus in his deity, his strength as the lion of Judah, his power over men, their false assumptions coming to him as merely a man, as Jesus of Nazareth only, and his power over them, and speaking the great name, I am, and they're thrown to the ground, only to turn around and allow them to arrest him. He is the lamb. And we'll continue those themes once again today, but from a little bit different light, a little bit different emphasis. And so before we move any further along, uh, please stand with me if you're able, and we'll read together verses 12 through 14, and then pray and begin working through this. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, we know the depths of Your Word stretch further than we even can imagine. Lord, though all else will fade away, we know that Your Word will endure and abide forever. God, I pray that You would stretch us today, that we would see the significance of these few verses. Open our eyes to think deeply about what's before us now. To see Jesus Christ as our perfect substitute in all things. Lord, challenge us. Move us. Let us see Him that we might glory in Him. Worship and adore Him. O oh, Father, we are cast upon You. I am. I pray, Father, that You would protect us from error. Guard my mouth from speaking things that aren't true. O oh, Father, grant power and liberty and authority to proclaim what is true. By your spirit and for your glory alone. I ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. So we begin here in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The first thing we notice is a little bit of a recap or reiteration of something we saw last week which is the sheer number of people sent to capture Jesus is astounding. Now you'll recall a band of soldiers was between 500 and 1,000 trained guards. Roman soldiers are sent to arrest Him in addition to who knows how many officers of the Jews and temple guards. This was a large company. And something we hinted at last week, we didn't really dive into it, is this. It's hard to imagine a more unlikely pairing than the Jews and the Roman soldiers. The Jews hated the Romans. The Jews were being oppressed and occupied by the Romans. 
They didn't want them there. As a matter of fact, as we've seen through John, many of the Jews' problem was that they primarily thought the Messiah was going to deliver them from the hand of Roman oppression. They misunderstood what he was coming for. They hated these Romans. And so how unlikely is it that they would band together with them in this way to come after Christ? That they, these people who so hated each other, I mean, a common expression from the Romans would have been to look at these Jews as nothing more than dogs and insignificant, filth. They did not value or appreciate them by and large. Why is it that these people would partner together in this way? Well, there are only two things which can unite such unlikely allies. You know what they are? Only two things ever unite people in this way who otherwise would absolutely hate each other. And it is either a love for God or a hatred of God. Those who love God will unite under His banner and with His people. And those who hate God will unite against God and against His people. Again, we considered that from Psalm 2 last week, didn't we? That the kings of the earth, they set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. They persecuted and came after Him together in opposition against Him. And so I ask from the outset today, what does this union between Romans and Jews against the Lord Jesus have to do with you and I? 2,000 years later, does this impact us in any way? Well, remember from John 15 and verse 20, Jesus said this, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, or me, excuse me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. Here's the point. The gathering together of these otherwise mortal enemies against Christ is a pattern which has often been repeated through the long history of the church. Go and read church history and find groups of people who have virtually nothing in common, uniting together, raising up together against Christ and against His people. My question is, do we see that happening today? Is there any evidence today in the world we live in of opposition and assault against God and against His people? For many of you, you've lived in rel relative peace in this country of ours, and you've been able to worship freely for many years. And on the surface, it may look like the assault against Christ and His people is not that real. And yet, let me suggest to you, it's as real today as it's ever been. Think on it this way. Religious groups, Christians included, they're allowed to gather together so long as they abide by the world's regulations. As long as we only worship in the way they tell us that we can. As soon as we step out from that, be careful. Christians are allowed to own their own businesses. They're allowed to work in jobs and be employed by people unless their biblical convictions offend and confront the sin of those they interact with. In addition to that, believers are permitted to evangelize so long as their message is focused on love, acceptance, and a tolerance of evil. Here's the point. Those who hate God are more than happy to tolerate a Joel Osteen or an Oprah Winfrey. Someone who really represents a cultural kind of Christianity which is far more cultural than it is Christian. You get my meaning? The world is fine to tolerate those things but the moment you begin to deal with themes such as the sinfulness of man or the exclusive message which says Jesus Christ alone saves through the power of His death and resurrection, 
and you call people to repent and exercise a living faith and a living Christ, that they will not abide. And let us be reminded of this. They did not arrest, torture, and crucify Jesus because He kept His mouth shut concerning these things. And we cannot either. The souls of those around us are far too precious. And even more so than that, the glory of Christ's name is too worthy for us to keep these truths hidden in order to avoid opposition. And so I'm asking at the outset today, what is to be the grounds of our appeals? How is it that we are able to stand before people, ourselves being sinners yet, and yet call for them to repent and trust in Christ? Call out and identify sin. What's the motivation for our zeal in the face of such evil? And how can we hope to prevail? Here's my point. As we see these, this army of people, I mean, when you're talking about this large a gathering of opposition against Christ, the first thing you ought to be realizing is that as his follower, you're going to face a similar opposition. How is it that you're going to be prepared to stand? And if you don't think such opposition is coming, there's only one of two possibilities. Either you're not living according to the word of Christ and you don't belong to him or you are in for a rude awakening. And so the grounds, what's the grounds that we should be looking to here? We see this band of soldiers and their captain, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, this expression, they arrested Jesus and bound him is much more momentous than perhaps it first appears to be. We've already considered that this demonstrates for us the incredible meekness and humility of Christ in allowing this to take place. Remember this, that the God of the universe, who's capable of uttering two words and throwing this entire company on the ground, on the ground is likewise able with the breath of his mouth to obliterate every human on the planet in an instant. There's nothing outside of his power and control. And yet he allows these fallen sinful creatures to arrest him. I submit to you that is almost unbelievable. It's, it's almost ridiculous to see that this would happen. But this arrest and the binding of Christ. Is it merely a historical aspect of his journey to the cross? Or is there more to it than? What do you suppose is actually being pictured for us here in the language that's used? And this language is significant throughout all the Bible. You'll find there's always more depth than appears on the surface of this word. I challenge you and encourage you as you read these scriptures, don't settle for a superficial cursory reading of the word of God. This is worthy of in-depth, thorough investigation to seek out the diamonds that are within it. We read that Jesus was arrested and he was bound. Here's my question. Do we truly appreciate the shame that is associated with this arrest? With this binding to be spat upon, ridiculed and led around in chains before the entire town and being made out to be a criminal? What do you suppose? How would how would you feel about an, an experience like that? Suppose they were all of a sudden to gather us up. And say that everyone here was the darkest, most gruesome and vile child predator on the planet. That we had mutilated and abused thousands of children. And to lock us in irons and parade us through this town. Telling everybody how wicked and evil and godless we were. 
and all of it untrue. As horrible as that picture may be to imagine, it pales in comparison to what Christ is going through in this scene. Being arrested, being mistreated in this way. And so I ask, what comes into your mind when you consider the idea of being arrested and bound? There are two primary aspects of this arresting and binding that I think we should consider. The first is the nature of what it means to be bound. And the second is the result of being bound. What we ought to see in this in Christ is a clear proclamation to us of what he's come to do for us and what would be true of us apart from his coming. And here they are, the nature of being bound and the result of being bound. As to the nature of being bound, what does it mean that Jesus was bound? What does it mean when anyone is bound? To be bound means that you're controlled by or enslaved to whatever has bound you. If you're bound to something, you're at the complete mercy of it. It is your master. You must obey and follow whichever direction the holder of your chains leads you. If you're bound by something, there's no escape. And the one who has you bound determines anywhere you go. You're not free. You're enslaved and bound, exactly as is depicted in Christ here. And some have even suggested, go and read Matthew Henry if you like on the subject, that Jesus was not only bound around His hands and feet. All our text says is that He was bound. But there are actually many who have suggested, historians suggest, that He actually would have had a brace attached to His neck so that He could be steered from behind. You're talking about zero control of the direction you're going. Completely controlled by the One who has bound you and enslaved you. And in light of the caution that no doubt was given by Judas, the one who saw Him do mighty mighty miracles and said, this one we're coming after, He has power over the elements, over the storm, over the wind and the seas. He has the power to raise the dead. This one we're going after has great power. We must bind Him and control Him. On the surface of that, how ridiculous, how insane, how blind you must be to think you're going to control this one in this way. And yet again, the humility of Christ subjecting himself to it. This is the nature of what it means to be bound. Now, in light of this, that's quite a horrible picture, isn't it? Being controlled, your every movement controlled by the one who has hold of you. And as horrible as that is, the biblical picture is that we are in that exact state when we're born into the world with regards to sin, with regards to evil. We are bound in that exact way. And if you think it's a stretch to make that parallel between Christ taking, subjecting Himself to this binding of sinful men here, wait and follow the thought through our text today. Follow this Together with me now. Every one of us are born in sin. We're brought forth in iniquity. And we come forth speaking lies. And being full of evil from the very womb. The, the whole, your whole Bible is full of this language of being enslaved to sin. You can't read your scriptures without coming across this. But just consider a few examples of this exact point. Second Peter 2.19 says this. They promised them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. 
First example, Peter tells us plainly, if you're overcome by something, that thing that has you overcome is your master. That's what controls you. That's what consumes your every your every action. All that you do is according to that which has enslaved you. Romans 6, 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's the meaning. Paul's saying this, that if you're not in Christ, if you have not been crucified with Christ, you are enslaved to sin. You have no control, no say in the matter. You have a master that's controlling you. Even as you picture Christ being led around in these chains, you are being controlled in exactly the same way if you're outside of Christ. You're a slave to sin and you have no choice in the matter. And then John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus tells us this himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Here's the first reality as to the nature of being bound. If you're bound or enslaved to something, it has control over you. The question I arrive at is here today, are you enslaved to sin? And don't for a moment, even as a Christian, automatically assume the answer to that is no. Now, we know that if we've been freed by Christ, we're not enslaved to sin. And yet, again and again in the New Testament, the epistles warn us against living as though we're enslaved to the flesh. Living as though we're still indebted to the flesh. As a matter of fact, Paul's argument there in Romans 6 is to say you've been freed from this bondage to sin. You have a new master. Live according to Him. Mortify the flesh. Kill it. Don't let it be your master. I ask again, are you enslaved to sin? Do you find that you're controlled by your own passions and lusts? And here's a question. Are you unable to cast off that which wages war against your soul? Or are you trapped in an endless bondage with no way out? It should come as no surprise that those who desire sin will fight both tooth and nail to preserve their right to exercise their sin. Why? Because the biblical record tells us that those who are outside of Christ want their sin celebrated because at their very core, they're controlled by an all-consuming master. And they cannot deny Him and they will not. If you're not in Christ, how is it? Answer me honestly here today. If you're outside of Christ, are you actually able to stop sinning? The answer is no, you're not. You're beholden to it. You're enslaved by it. And so how can it be in our text that the one the Bible tells us knew no sin, how can it be that he would subject himself to enslavement by sinners who loved their sin? It says of Jesus, he was arrested and bound. The second aspect of what it means to be bound, the nature of being bound, keep in mind the first, is that you are beholden to your master who has bound you. The second aspect of being bound is the result of it. Notice this. Chains are not an end in themselves, but they're a means to an end. You follow the point here? Slavery, it leads to death. This bondage leads to death. They didn't only slap irons on Jesus in order for him to be enslaved to the irons for a short period. It was in order to lead him to the cross. 
to judgment first and then to the cross. Here's my point. The arrest and binding of Jesus was ultimately serving a greater purpose for those who opposed him. And I argue just in the same way that the chains which we're born into, they're leading us to a greater and more eternal end. Here's the point. The God of this world, Satan, as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers, he enslaves the hearts of his subjects as he leads them towards death and destruction. Have you ever seen those horse and buggies pulled by the giant horses, sometimes the Clydesdales? Angie's familiar with that breed of horse, aren't you? These giant horses. Have you noticed when they're traveling down the road, they've got these blinders on so they can only see what's in front of them? They're not distracted and they're not stirred away by, the thing, by their surroundings. They're, they're guided by their master, the one directing the carriage. In a very like way, Satan has his subjects bound with blinders on that only see the end and they don't realize that the end that they're going toward is death. And that's exactly what chains do. Being bound or enslaved, the end of it is certainly your death. Romans 6.23 tells us for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've considered that being bound or enslaved in the way that we are outside of Christ means that we're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to sin. And here we find the wages, what we earn by our sin is death. Every brick that we lay in the road from our own desire and fleshly sin is building the road to hell. And then we find in James 1, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's the picture. Sin leads to death. They arrested Jesus and bound him in order that they might kill him, as we're going on to see. And if you die in a state of bondage to sin, you're going to face the judgment of God. You're going to face his very wrath and your slavery to sin and desire is producing death in you. And I ask again, even as I ask as far as your bondage to sin that you cannot stop doing. Have you tried to escape? Have you found any success as you've tried to put down the thing that so has your heart consumed that's not God? And I know many people who will say, yes, I've had success. I've stopped doing bad. I've seen growth, moral development. I've become a better person, made a better me. Well, any victory that you think you have apart from Christ and the power of God is vain. And I submit to you that many people have just simply traded in darker desires for more acceptable sins. That's the pattern of these things. Those who are enslaved to sin, they remain enslaved to sin, though they may have traded up for a master with a little bit more tolerable benefits for them now. Though they may not die immediately as a result of their sin. And yet perhaps a more tolerable sin is a greater evidence of being given over. You see, the ones who are railing against God openly, let me tell you, they're much easier to evangelize than the ones who think that they're already right with God because of their own righteousness and their own endeavors. Have you tried to escape? 
And lest we imagine, all of us here today who profess faith, that we are not enslaved or not in jeopardy because our lives aren't as evil as those around us, consider this warning. Proverbs 16.25 There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. way of death. The point in the proverb there is that there are those who think they're on their right way. They think they're living righteously. They think they've found the right way to God. And you can be just as enslaved to your own perceived righteousness as the homosexual and the drunkard is enslaved to the passions of their flesh. You think that those things are evil and indeed they are. And perhaps they're even a greater manifestation of evil in the land. And yet... The slavery to your own righteousness and thinking your ways right before God is going to cause you to meet the same end as them apart from the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So again, I ask, how can it be that the sinless son of God should ever subject himself to such bondage? Why is it that he should be enslaved and ultimately die under the wrath of both God and man? This Pictured for us of him being bound and enslaved goes much deeper, I argue, than it looks on the surface. Verse 13, we press on. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. I've got to be honest with you, I was tempted at first to spend much more time on this verse and dealing with the relationship within this family. And working through the implications of what all is here. But I've determined for the sake of time not to dive overly deep into those issues. But I will say a few things on this verse before we press on. The first is notice in this verse that it is in keeping with everything we've already been looking at. How they led him. That's very clear in the text. They led him To Annas. Now, on one level, Jesus already said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. So they didn't forcibly do this to him without his pleasure and will in obeying the Father. And yet, the result of his bondage, of his being bound to them, is that they led him where they wanted him to go. He truly was their captive to be done with as they pleased. And secondly, evidently, Annas and Caiaphas within their family, had a dark intent towards Christ. Now, an undeniable truth, which stretches across all time and all cultures, which is seen in this verse, is that sin begets sin within the family structure. Do you see that? Such an interesting, easy-to-overlook reference here. Here we have Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And they seem to be in agreement about doing this to Christ. There's even some family tie that's producing this evil in them. And every father better listen to this. Every grandfather better listen to this. Every father-in-law, even as Annas was here, that if your life as a leader in your home is marked by chaos, sin, and opposition to God, it is sure to have a measurable impact on your family. And I'm not only speaking to lost people here. As a Christian, as a father, realize your responsibility in influencing and impacting your children. The first question you ought to ask when you see either your wife or your children in sin is how am I failing to lead them? 
How am I leading them away from God? What in me is producing this? A question even that Kelly and I ask at times, if there's an issue in the church, how are we failing as leaders here? What are we not doing? And first and foremost, seeing the great responsibility that comes with leadership in the context of the family or the church. There is a clear relationship between both Annas and Caiaphas here and their intention against the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet their intentions against him would not thwart the purpose of God. And then in addition to this, look at the attempt here by Caiaphas, both to placate and impress his religious father-in-law. Annas was of no doubt of high reputation. These religious leaders, these Jews, these temple guards and Roman soldiers, the first place they take Jesus after arresting him and binding him is before Annas. Matthew Henry again notates that Annas was likely an older man, had a harder time getting around, but you can almost imagine them parading him by Annas' house in order to show off their capture. Look what we've got here. We got him. He's ours now. And the application to us is however much we might impress our religious superiors with our zeal, if we're found in opposition to Christ, On the last day, it will not avail us at all, no matter how much you impress others. And finally, into verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The destination of this godless procession we're observing of persecutors was to be the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas. You know what for, right? Justify themselves. We're doing what's right. We've even got the religious leaders approval and authority for what we're doing here. I'm reminded in the last number, last two or three years, how many times there have been questions clouding people's minds as to what's the appropriate thing to do as it relates to worship, as it relates to God and even gathering together like this. And how many people sat around waiting for some person they considered to be a religious authority to tell them what to do, what's right. And I don't care whether you're talking about a shot or a mask or gathering for worship. Somebody else has to tell me what I'm supposed to do here. How easy it is to err when you entrust yourself to the opinions of men, even me. Look to the word, look to the scriptures, let God be your guide and not those even that you hold and high esteem. But here they've come before Caiaphas so that he will use his religious authority to judge and condemn Christ. Now, remember back with me for a moment the apparent wisdom and insight that Caiaphas had offered previously in John's Gospel. You can look back with me for just a moment to John chapter 11. If memory serves me right, the title of the sermon was God's Purpose for Evil Men. And how we saw Caiaphas, both as we're seeing now in our text, to be one who is opposed to Christ. And remember, Jesus said, if they love me, if they loved the Father, they would have loved the Son whom the Father sent. They don't love God. Caiaphas did not love God or he would have loved Christ. So here's one opposed to God and yet God working through him. Now we see in verse 45 through 53 this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. In this account, this telling, we're reminded that though they brought Jesus bound as a prisoner before Caiaphas, we're reminded that all the plotting and all the scheming against Christ was according to the Father's purpose. Isn't that amazing? They hate Him. They want to remove Him. They want to protect themselves from Rome. And they even end up partnering themselves with Rome. Isn't that striking? Those whom they feared they would face strict opposition from because of Christ's miracles and teaching, they partnered themselves with Him in order to kill Him. And what Caiaphas had no realization of was that even as he spoke this condemnation towards Christ, God the Father was preaching the gospel through this wicked man. Now that's encouraging. God's sovereignty over evil men seen in that displayed for us. And this is what this reminds us. That even his prophecy as the high priest concerning putting Christ to death was given by God. And we ought to also realize that in our text, in John 18, that the arrest, the binding, and the humiliation is also according to the Father's purpose. So again, I ask you, what does all this have to do with you and I? How does your understanding of these things unfolding before us in John 18, does that actually affect you at all here today and now? How do these things prepare us and equip us even to face opposition in the world with boldness and with consolation and even zeal? Can you have zeal at those who oppose you and hate you for Christ? What's going to be the source of these things? I'm reminded even that we go on to read and reference in another place that Jesus, though he's enduring this humiliation and this persecution, it says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured this cross. He endured this shame that he so despised with joy, excitement, boldness and zeal. Is that something you and I can hope to enter into at all? Well, here will be the grounds of it. Caiaphas says it's better that one man should die for the people. One man instead of the entire nation. A substitute. Caiaphas says here's our substitute. He'll die instead of all of us. Look with me in your Bibles just for a moment. At Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And think about this in light of our text that Jesus was arrested and they bound him. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go, go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. What a telling there, isn't it? Here's the fascinating truth. The story did not end with God saying, though I've commanded the death of your one and only son, he's been bound and marched up this mountain and here you are to slay him. He stops the hand of Abraham and says, don't kill him. That wasn't the end. History presses on. It continues forward from that point. God foreshadowed for us exactly what he was going to do. And Caiaphas, who should have known that ignorantly and selfishly proclaims the precise fulfillment of what was promised in the garden in Genesis 3 and what shadowed on the Mount Moriah and ultimately what Jesus accomplished on his cross. Here's the point. Christ's arrest, his binding, his death and his resurrection was all as our substitute. I want to read with you again, if we can make it through it, from Isaiah chapter 53. Letting these things settle into your very soul. From Isaiah 53. What is Jesus doing here? Bound as one arrested, as one standing as though he were guilty. What is he doing? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, did you catch this? So many things in this text as this one led as a lamb to the slaughter. And notice it says the will of the Lord's going to prosper in his hand, not be denied. The will of the Father was not denied in this arrogant high priest Caiaphas and all the Jews and the Romans putting him to death. It was fulfilling the will of the Lord to crush his only son in the place of sheep who had gone astray. And this is what we need to see in our text today. Can you imagine any greater motivation for living a life of abandonment for Christ than this? Is there any greater encouragement that you can have in the face of opposition from the world than to know the love of this Savior? Is there any sweeter lure which will draw you away from the enticements of sin? Anything you can imagine that will so woo your heart than this Savior who bled and died? This one who says, I'll go, Father, as a lamb led to slaughter. Consider it this way. He was arrested. In order that you would be delivered. He was bound that you would be set free. He was humiliated in order that you would be glorified. He was tortured. In order that you would be comforted. This Jesus was crucified. In order that you and I would die to sin. He was judged in order that you and I would be forgiven of our sins. And he died in order that we might live. And not only that, he rose from the dead in order that we might rise with him. All of these things, his substitution did not begin on the cross. It began in Bethlehem when he came into the world. His entire life, a substitute for us. So when he was bound and arrested, he was taking the place of you and I. And even in tears this morning, considering I can stand before you in fancy clothes and fixed hair and say I'm, I'm this righteous person. But when in all reality, if I was stripped of all the accolades of men 
and were marched before everyone on the planet with all my sin exposed. What a shameful, miserable wretch I would be. And you along with me. This is what Christ did. This is the thing which Caiaphas was blind to. He didn't see this. I asked, do you see this? Does this move you in your soul today? Ephesians 4, 8 says this. When he ascended on high, this is a reference to his resurrection and then his ascension back to the Father. It says this. He led a host of captives. You and I were bound as captives. That's why he came to lead a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. You see, we're delivered from our enslavement to sin. Oh, free from the law, a happy condition, right? We're freed from the condemnation of that cursed law that's a blessed, good reflection of God's character, but it's condemnation to me because I can't keep it. Delivered from the law through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No longer bound. If you're in Christ, you've been set free. You're at liberty. You're no longer enslaved. And if you're still enslaved, Christ is the only one who can take off that chain. That chain which will keep you miserable now and is in full effect leading you to your own destruction. Jesus, He died in order that many should live. My prayer for you is that you would not leave this place as Caiaphas apparently did. Hearing and knowing that truth and not ever having it applied to your own soul. And as Christian people, that's worthy of living for, isn't it? Your sins are gone. You're loved and forgiven. You're not a slave any longer. Don't live as a slave to your flesh, which tells you conform to the world to escape opposition. Live for this Christ who promises life and life eternal. That will ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord our God, You are indeed faithful. You are so kind. And Your plan of salvation is perfect. Perfect. Stir our hearts as we gaze upon the Christ, the living Christ. Father, I pray that You would give us strength. Encourage us by Your Spirit. I ask in Jesus' name.